Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleep Podcast Video Store. I'm David Cummings. Our VCR is ready to play stories about the horrors found returning to and escaping from home. After last week's little mishap with the announcements, I am fully prepared this week. I have my items written down so I won't forget what to say. Now, in the... Oh, wait. Why is that music starting again? Oh, no, no, I'm fading out. The No Sleep Podcast will soon be embarking on its third nationwide tour of the United States. But it's become clear that our live show is bigger than just one or two countries. There is a whole sleepless world out there waiting for us. And that's why we are proud to announce... Uh, um, uh, David, uh, excuse me, um, (laughs) David? Uh, Mr. Cummings, what are you doing? What? Why, I'm trying to make another exciting tour announcement. Well, yes, we know what you're announcing. We're just uh, questioning the, um, the, 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 the the tone of your announcement. Yes, all that ominous music and, uh, brace yourself for the dark hours stuff might work in the colonies, but it's not going to work over here. Really? You think we should take a different approach? Absolutely. We're talking about touring a part of the world known for culture and art and refined old world tastes. No, just step aside. Just please. What? Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Go and stand over there and let us handle this. What? Oh, oh, I mean, this is my show. Oh, rude. At long last, dear No Sleep Podcast fans of Europe, our long wait is over. The No Sleep Podcast is proud to announce... The No Sleep Live 2020 European Tour. Taking place in January of 2020, spanning seven countries over 21 days with performances in 17 cities. Brace yourself as our sleepless tour visits England, Scotland, the Netherlands... France, Germany, Denmark... And the tour concludes in Stockholm, Sweden. Ah. Just think, Erica, for once we won't have to fly across the Atlantic. You're right. Now Cummings, McAvoy and Boone will have to come to our home turf. They'll be at our mercy. They'll be out of their element. We'll have complete control over them. (laughs) (laughs) David, Erica, I think you're getting carried away. Yes, uh, quite right. So, make plans to see the No Sleep Podcast live in a city or country near you. Tickets will go on sale on the 12th of August, that's Monday, at 11 o'clock Central European Time or 10 o'clock British Summer Time. Just go to thenosleeppodcast.com slash tour and click the button for the European Tour page. There you'll find a list of venues and links to tickets. 
Joining Erica and myself will be Jessica McAvoy with Brandon Boone providing a live musical score. How exciting! You're forgetting someone! Are we? Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, and David will be Cummings to Europe as well. <laughs> uh... All right, all right, that's enough. So much for all that class and culture you're going on about. All right, all right, you're done. Go go drink some tea or something. Uh, well, tea. you don't get tea, tea in America. That's right, fans from Europe. We're coming to see you. Go to the nosleeppodcast.com slash tour and click the link to our European tour dates. Make your plans now to join the No Sleep Podcast live on their 2020 European Tour. Hmm, I'm not even sure why I bother hosting anymore if I'm just going to be interrupted every episode. Anyway, announcement time is done. So, turn down the lights and grab the remote, because it's time for our feature presentation. In our first tale, we get to experience the fun and frolics of a young woman heading off on a much-needed vacation. But as we dive into this tale shared with us by author Nick Moore, it becomes clear that her travel journal isn't just a list of places she went, because what this young woman experienced was a horrible monstrosity. Performing this tale are Addison Peacock, Atticus Jackson, Mike Delgadio, and Jessica McAvoy. So grab your suitcases and don't forget your toothbrush, lest you find yourself between the devil and the deep blue sea. Vacation. This trip is badly needed. Can't believe how bad life has been the last few years. Maybe I'll stay here. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Maybe. My boss barely gave me time off as it was. That job sucks, but I need the money and the insurance. I didn't want to leave mom for a week either with how sick she is. But she really pushed me. Said a week away would rejuvenate me. We've just got each other, but it's hard to get away. It really was a spur-of-the-moment decision. I was walking around the touristy downtown here and deciding where I should eat before I headed to the beach. The guy selling snorkeling excursions really did a good job selling the outing. Three hours out, a few hours of snorkeling at a reef and a picnic lunch at an island, and three hours back. A full day out on the water sounded appealing, and before I knew it, I was putting down my credit card and climbing aboard a boat. A few hours later, we were swimming and exploring this gorgeous spot. It was a fun group, and there were more than a few people there by themselves, so I didn't feel left out. The water was so clear, and there were so many fish and so much coral, and I didn't even realize how quickly time was passing. After lunch, we had some time to walk around the small island we were on. There wasn't a lot going on, though we stumbled across a small cave that was filled with what looked like ancient figurines. They looked really old, and I was worried someone was going to damage them, 
before one of the crew came over and told us we couldn't be in the cave because it was an archaeological landmark. Said they normally had signs up on the beach that you couldn't go past a certain point and that the cave was well into the protected area. I'm glad nothing got broken. He was so mad, said we were risking their license. They let us swim a bit more before we left, and I was so thrilled for the chance. The day was perfect, and it was disappointing to hear them call us in and start for shore. We rode into heavy fog on the way back, and visibility dropped to almost nothing. It's spooky to be out there in the middle of the fog, and the boat has slowed down quite a bit. They just told us we would be late getting back. A few people griped, but they've passed out some free beers and drinks, and everyone has cheered up pretty quickly. I think I fell asleep. Must have been the drinks. I'm such a lightweight. I can hear some nervous whispering. Two crew members are talking in hushed voices, and it's clear something is up. It sounds like the instruments are down, and we might be off course. Going to use the bathroom and see if I can see anything. I just worked my way up to the bathroom and peeked over the side. The dark water was just below me, though I couldn't see more than a few feet away in the fog. I used the little bathroom and then peeked back over the side. It looked like we were in shallow water. I could see the bottom below the surface of the water. And then it was dark again. I'm going to ask one of the crew if that's safe. My memories of last night are hazy. I remember grabbing my bag and looking for the crew. I remember the boat lurching. I remember being airborne for a second and then hitting the water. I remember voices in the water and swimming toward them. I remember how scared I was until my feet finally touched sand. There were 28 of us last night, 22 customers and six crew members. Now there are four crew members and 18 customers. The rest, we assume, drowned. We have no idea what we hit in the dark and the fog. A bunch of us were tossed overboard. The captain somehow managed to keep the boat afloat a little longer. He saw something that looked like an island and headed towards it. Good thing, too. He grounded the boat in shallow water, so we've been able to raid it for food and water. Unfortunately, the communication systems are all down. The few cell phones that weren't destroyed get no service. Having mine in a Ziploc bag saved the day, but I'm keeping it off so the battery doesn't get wasted. We don't know where we are, except it's a little group of islands. Two seem to pretty much touch, and the other looks to be about a half a mile away. We're going to walk around and see if there's any water or fruit while we wait for rescuers to come looking for us. Can't believe this has happened. What are the chances my one vacation would wind up like this? Something is wrong. We had explored the two close islands and had come back to our makeshift camp. We hadn't really been keeping track of how many people we had, but around sundown, we realized we were down to 21. The missing person had been behind us on the way back, but we were walking along the beach and she just vanished. 
The crew was arguing about how far off course we could have gotten. I guess it makes a difference in how long it'll take to find us. I want to go home. We spent today walking around the island, looking for the girl who vanished last night. The captain said she must have tried to take a shortcut across the island and had probably hurt herself. We walked all over the place. I stuck in a group with a couple, Alice and Dennis, and a guy named Steve who seemed a bit quiet but nice. It was actually a nice day. We hiked back and forth across the island, and I managed to forget how bad everything was for a bit. It's really beautiful here. We didn't see any sign of the missing woman, but we found what looks like a small freshwater spring. We made it back to camp a bit before dark as other groups came back. Four more people have vanished, including the captain. The three remaining crew members are standing by themselves, having what does not sound like a happy conversation. What is happening? The three remaining crew members took off in the night. They took one of the two lifeboats and some of the water and food, leaving the other 14 of us to fend for ourselves. They said something was wrong with the island and they were going to get help for us. But it feels a lot like we've been abandoned. None of us are sure what to do right now. We don't have a ton of food and people keep disappearing. We decided to stay on the beach today and come up with a plan but mostly people are just arguing. A few of the guys swam out to the reef the boat is stuck on and raided it for fishing equipment. They haven't caught anything yet, but at least it's something to do. I saw it. This morning, there was suddenly a bunch of movement in the water. A whole ton of fish were right in the shallow water in front of us. A few guys grabbed nets and were just scooping them out of the water while we cheered. It was incredible. It came up right behind them. I can't explain what I saw. At first I thought it was a giant shark or a whale, but then I saw the tentacles. It didn't look like anything I've ever seen in any book or picture. It was huge and it came out of nowhere. Everyone was screaming and running up away from the water. It grabbed three people and was gone almost before we could tell what was happening. We've decided to camp up near the tree tonight where it's safer. Everyone is freaked out. Alice and Dennis are sitting off by themselves. Alice sounded like she was crying most of the night. Steve cornered me and asked me if I had seen anything anyone had in their possession something that could be attracting this beast to us. Like what? This thing is eating us, so probably we make a good meal, Steve. Everyone is divided on what to do. I say we stay the fuck away from the water until help gets here, though someone else made the point that this thing might be what we hit in the night. Maybe it's mad about that? But who's to say it won't hit another boat? Now that we've all seen it, the creature seems emboldened. Most of the time we can see it, coming up to the surface, working its way from one side of the horizon to the other. It's watching us. The third island has a higher vantage point. 
One of the guys here, Mark, wants to swim over with a radio and see if he can signal someone. Sounds like suicide to me. I was up early this morning and decided to take a walk by myself to get us more water. I picked my way across the interior of the island, staying away from the sand. After getting water, I decided to walk a bit further to see the far beach. There, in the sand, sat the missing lifeboat. The three crew members were nowhere on board, but the bottom of the boat had a large pool of blood. I haven't told the others. I don't want them to know that help isn't coming. Mark grabbed the radio and tried to swim for it. We didn't realize he was gone at first, but when we did, we ran to the channel between the islands. The beast was nowhere in sight, and he was already halfway across to the third island. He was a strong swimmer, and it actually filled me with hope to see how far he had made it. Steve walked down to the water and looked like he was going to swim after him. But before he started, we suddenly saw it cruising through the water. From our vantage point, you could really see its size. I have no idea how big it was, but I have been on whale watching trips before, and this thing dwarfed any of them. It didn't even slow down as it plucked him from the surface and continued on. What are we gonna do? We needed a plan. We sat around the fire, arguing. I tried to be quiet, but no one had any good ideas. We were running out of food, and getting near the water to try to catch fish would be suicide. In the fire, the dancing lights gave everyone's face an interesting aura. I watched as some people yelled, some whispered, and some said nothing at all. I finally interrupted. Listen, the 11 of us need to work together. Dennis shot me a nasty look. Ten. Mark is dead, if you didn't remember. I lowered my head, but then realized he was wrong. There were 11 of us around the fire. I had been looking at everyone's face in turn. That's when it clicked. I saw her. She was sitting among us, looking as sunburned and bedraggled as the rest of us. But I had never seen her before. Her face was entirely unfamiliar. I pointed with a shaking hand. No, Eleven. Her smile was more of a snarl. Return it, and perhaps Mother will spare the rest of you. It was not yours to take. We watched, slack-jawed, as she sprinted into the waves, disappearing into the night. None of us said a word. What in the hell do we need to return? What was she? A crate of food washed up this morning. I woke up to excited voices talking about it. It was huge, must have been 10 feet long. With it, we wouldn't have to worry about our provisions running out for weeks, maybe months. Dennis carefully worked his way down to the edge of the water, but he couldn't budge it. It was stuck, right in the shallow water. 
We stared up and down the beach, looking for any sign of the beast, before deciding we would all run down together and pull it up the sand. If we moved quickly, we would be safe. We moved down toward the water, still seeing no sign of the monster that had stalked us for days. We got in position and heaved. The crate wouldn't budge. We all decided to get on one side, see if we could tip it over instead of trying to pull it. By heaving, we managed to get it rocking and finally tip it over. As it splashed down, I looked into the shallow water where it had been, confused about the purple streak now visible under the water, perplexed about what I was seeing. Then I realized that the crate hadn't washed up. As the beast pulled itself up from the sand it had been buried in, we all sprinted towards the safety of the trees. Only three of us made it. Dennis, Steve, and I sat and watched as it slowly pulled itself back into the deeper water from where it had been hiding in the sand, pulling the rest of our sorry band of survivors into the depths. Three of us left. I've stopped thinking of the beast as a mindless killer. There is something to it. It is smart. It hunts. It... She... Can set traps? We'll never get out of here if we don't figure it out. Steve has been sitting and staring at the water for hours. Dennis has been polishing off the remains of the alcohol while sobbing. I've been watching them both. One of them is hiding something. None of us will survive if I don't figure it out. Steve woke me up in the night. Walk with me. We walked down the beach, staying well clear of the waterline. Did you take it? Take what? <sighs> in the cave. Did you take a sculpture? I stopped walking and stared at him. After we snorkeled? No. It was Dennis, then. What did he take? Something that was not his. I paused, and the realization hit me like a wave. You weren't in the cave, Steve. He shook his head and smiled. Who are you? He looked sad. Get it from Dennis and bring it to the water. You'll be safe if you do. Then he took off his shirt, revealing what looked like gills on his sides. He smiled one last time, and then turned and sprinted into the waves, vanishing before my eyes. I didn't wait until morning. I marched back to where Dennis slept and shook him awake. What did you take? What did you take? He was awake then. You can't have it. It's all I have left of her. All these people died because of you! It was for Alice. Show me. He reached into his pocket and withdrew a small stone artifact. It looked like something she would like. Before he could react, I snatched it from his hands and went running for the water. Stop! He gave chase, but I had a good head start. I was almost at the water when he hit me from behind and we tumbled into the sand. 
The statue went flying, and he was up, running towards it. I don't think he saw the tentacle coming until it hit him. It connected hard with his gut, knocking him into the water. I stared as another tentacle wrapped around him and pulled him under the waves. I stood and slowly made my way to the small statue in the sand. I picked it up and looked up at the massive beast before me. This was nothing I had ever seen before. Something else entirely. Something ancient that had been in the ocean forever. I felt the weight of its presence wash over me. Then I walked forward and placed the statue upon one of its giant tentacles. The second I did, it began pushing itself backwards into the water. I stood and watched it until it disappeared. I stood and watched for a long time after. I waited until morning to leave. I packed a bag of food and water and pushed the remaining lifeboat into the ocean. Then I slowly started paddling. I didn't have an idea of where I was going, but something told me that didn't matter. Sure enough, a current picked me up a short time later and started pushing me along. I sat and watched the islands disappear behind me, seeming to sink into the ocean itself. I sat and watched the sea, unending on every side as I floated along. I woke up this morning to seagulls. I opened my eyes and saw them flying over me. It was then that I finally took my phone out and powered it on. The voicemails poured in and I clicked through them. My boss was unhappy about a report he couldn't find, despite me telling him four times where it was. He got progressively angrier. My mom's doctor wanted to talk. A colleague was telling me she was worried about how mad my boss was. My boss fired me. Then my mom's doctor again. Then a third time. By the third time she left a message, she finally told me what I already knew. I have nothing to go back to. I see the shimmer land on the horizon and know that there is nothing waiting for me there. Steve has appeared next to the boat, swimming in the water. He tells me I proved myself. He tells me I can be like him. He tells me I can stay in the water. I don't think I'm going home. Or maybe, in some ways, I am. Worrying about a loved one's state of mind can take its toll. When they've expressed suicidal thoughts in the past, it's easy to wonder exactly what happened when they die in a supposed accident. 
That's the case for many in this tale shared with us by author Sarah L. Johnson. Did her sister finally achieve her life's ambition of sewing the perfect dress? Or is everything Minnie knows about to unravel? Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Goodnight, and Dan Zapula. So fold up the fabric and iron out the creases as we prepare to sew the suicide stitch. I stood on my sister Celia's clover-infested lawn as the dumpster slid off the truck and settled on the driveway with a steely boom. I had ordered the biggest, knowing I'd need it emptied at least once before I was done. The driver lowered the hydraulic bed. I gave him a thumbs up, and he drove off in a rumbling diesel crescendo. The edges of Celia's key dug into my palm as I turned back to the house with its scabby brown paint and leaky windows. Once I got the front door open, I had to kick a trail through a heap of garment bags just to get past the gloomy foyer. I reached for the light switch, but let my hand drop short. Full exposure could wait. I peered into the living room finding it crammed full of boxes and bags containing buttons, zippers, snaps, rivets, thread, and piping. A mountain of notions so high it brushed the beards of dust hanging from the motionless ceiling fan. I shoved my way through more garment bags and slipped down the hall, sideways, on account of the bolts of fabric stacked up against the walls on either side. I knew it would be bad. When it comes to hoarders, there is no rock bottom. Not until you've hit the rafters. Damn it, Celia. I'd been doing that a lot the last few days. Damning her. For being a complete fuck-up. For leaving me with this disaster. For ripping a vital stitch out of my life without any warning. I wasn't ready to sort through her shit and clean up her mess. I wasn't ready for my little sister to be dead. I pulled my phone from my skirt pocket and scanned the screen. My thumb hovered over the decline button. Except I knew he'd only keep calling. I brought the phone to my ear. Hey, Nate. Hi. He paused, and I heard a whining roar in the background, which meant he was driving. I've been trying to call you for days. Min, I'm so sorry. Thanks. Why did I thank him? Why did he apologize? He didn't do anything, and I wasn't grateful. That was the problem with us. Our deferent lies came automatically. Truth had always been a weapon of last resort. It was a car accident? That's what the police officer said. But you told them. Told them what? Your sister wasn't exactly stable, Min. Doesn't matter anymore. Layers of puddled fabric baffled my voice into a flat slurch of sound. More lies. Of course it mattered. If it really were just an accident, I probably wouldn't be here. Are you alright? Do you need help? Celia's the one who needed help. I wandered into the kitchen and headed toward the stairs. And the whole point of divorce is for you to extricate yourself from my life. 
not weave your way back into it. At least that's the impression you gave me when you asked for one. Oh, come on, Min, don't be like that. He might have trailed off. More likely, I stopped listening. Because I saw her. Above me, on a steel pedestal in the middle of the landing that split the steep staircase into two manageable halves. Buff canvas stretched over a woman-shaped torso. She faced me head-on, as much as a headless woman can. Her curves pleasing, her posture inscrutable. Sunshine poured through the window behind her, and her shadow yawned down the stairs towards me. Min? Gotta go. Wait! I found Dolly. I hung up, shoving the phone into the pocket of my skirt. Celia knew I liked pockets, and always found a way to sew them into my skirts and dresses. From my vantage point, Dolly looked as big as she had the day my grandma brought her home for Celia and I, when we were nine and ten years old, respectively. Grandma was a seamstress, and she planned to teach us her trade. My first turn at her old Kenmore sewing machine, I stomped on the pedal before lowering the pressure foot. Grandma had to yank the needle out of my fingertip with pliers. From there, she decided it might be best to teach us to sew by hand. But my stitches were uneven, my seams crooked, and the fabric consistently ended up dotted with specks of blood. Celia, though, in her little hand, the needle became a magic wand. Within a week, she'd turned out a whole dress. Nothing fancy just a blue shift, but her seams were strong and straight, her stitches meticulous. I'm going to kill myself. Huh? I looked up from my math homework. Celia sat down across the table, resting her chin in her hands. Not today. Tomorrow? Probably not for a long time. I have to make a perfect dress first. That one you just made is perfect. Grandma said. Dolly says the zipper is uneven. Just a little. Who's Dolly? The dress form. Dress forms don't have names. She says that once you've done something perfect, there's no point in doing anything else. You're a weirdo. Celia bounded over to my side of the table and grabbed me up in a hard hug. I wasn't expecting it, and my pencil lead pricked my neck. Don't worry, Min. I promise not to kill myself without saying goodbye first. And so it went through our teens, twenties, and thirties. Periodically, I'd get a voicemail, email, or once, a registered letter saying something like Thursday or Sunday or whatever. A terse missive indicating the date she expected to finish her magnum opus. I'd go to her house on that day, and I'd have to find the tiny flaw in an otherwise perfect dress. A tailor-made game of Where's Waldo? I figured she was sloppy on purpose, on account of her not really wanting to kill herself, but being too proud to renege on an oath she took as a nine-year-old. Don't get me wrong, the dresses were works of art with an inner light and life of their own. She sold them on the internet, complete with the one small Waldo that she always left uncorrected.
say this dress was the one, how would you do it? I had just identified a poorly executed blanket stitch on a buttonhole. She gave me a despondent shrug and unzipped the yellow frock. The bodice slipped down Dolly's molded breasts and dropped into the skirt pooling at the pedestal base. Swallow a bunch of pills, maybe. Or pins. You know, whatever's around. Ought to be spontaneous, don't you think? Then her eyes, the deep slate of black pearls, welled up. She gathered the yellow dress in her arms, hugging it for a moment before tossing it on her work table and shuffling over to me. I tucked her head under my chin and held her as she cried out her obvious frustration and secret relief. I hiked up to the landing and rested my hands on Dolly's shoulders. Didn't expect you to be naked. Truly, I didn't. Why wasn't she in the sewing room, haloed by the sun, wearing a diaphanous petal pink gown? I always imagined that perfect dress being pink. No idea why. I curled an arm around Dolly's waist and hauled her up the next flight of steps trying not to trip on the grocery sacks stuffed with brown tissue paper patterns and piles of remnants in an endless array of colors. How Celia found anything in this nut house, I could never figure out. But she had a system. I could ask her for the teal zipper from a tartan skirt she wore when she was 16, and she'd buzz down to the basement, make a hell of a lot of noise, and minutes later be back in her sewing room, teal zipper in hand. A fat tear licked down my cheek. I wiped it away and cleared a passage to the sewing room. The door swung open without meeting any obstructions. I carried Dolly inside and set her down on the dust-free floorboards. The sewing room was the one orderly space in the house, and militantly so. Afternoon light came in through a clean window over a large, uncluttered work table. I sat down at the smaller sewing table that held Grandma's old Kenmore. I rested my forehead on the cold enamel, smelling machine oil and synthetic fibers. Then I got up and opened the closet. Several dresses hung from the rod. Red strapless T-length, blue maxi dress, slinky plum wrap, a chartreuse number with a tutu skirt that should have been hideous but was, instead, Strangely adorable. All lovely, but none perfect. I'd post them on eBay as usual. I glanced over at the dress form. Well, Dolly? Care to point me in the right direction? Dolly stood, impassive. Fine, but I know it's here somewhere, and I'm going to find it. I got up and strode out of the room flicking Dolly's left breast as I went by. The front door seemed a logical starting point. I opened each sticky plastic garment bag clogging the foyer and sorted through their rumpled contents, mostly thrift shop rags destined for repurposing. No dresses. I dragged the bags and clothes by the armful out to the driveway, where I tossed them over the lip of the bin. Next, I tackled the hallway, The purge would move faster if I could at least get from the front of the house to the back without turning sideways. I carried bolts of fabric, 
three at a time out to the bin. Wool, linen, poly blend, satin, crepe, and a variety of knits. In they went. Deep jewel tones, delicate pastels, and smart geometric patterns. My sister's shattered rainbow of accumulation thudded to the bottom of the dumpster. My phone buzzed in my skirt. I checked the screen. An email from my lawyer. Not my divorce lawyer, my traffic court lawyer, reminding me of my appearance next Tuesday. I'd already paid the fine and had the breathalyzer system installed, but I needed to shave some demerits off my license before my insurance came up for renewal. The whole thing was mortifying. I'd been upset on account of a fresh firing from the tool rental place. Or was it the caterers? Sometimes my resume blurred into a single gray streak of failure. Anyway, I'd lipped off an obnoxious customer. Can I help it if I have a medical condition? My manager humorlessly informed me that a severe asshole allergy wasn't a thing and tossed me out on my ear. I bounced my way to the nearest bar. A series of poor choices followed. Darkness fell, forcing me to turn on a few lights. I finished clearing the hallway sometime near midnight, my hands and arms raw with fabric burn. Tomorrow, I'd wear long sleeves and a pair of work gloves. I slid down cool plaster to the floor and stretched my legs out across the newly exposed hall runner, vibrant cobalt, a faded stripe worn down the center from years of Celia's sliding down the narrow passage she'd left between bales of textiles. I blotted the sweat behind my ears with a scrap of cotton, burnt orange paisley. I'd bought it myself, envisioning a simple sundress. A few days later, Celia had whipped up a sheath, cut on the bias with a fringed hemline. You know, the opposite of what I'd asked for. On Dolly, the sheath looked fabulous. On me, it looked like a lampshade. Until Celia attacked it with a mouthful of pins and commenced pinching, tucking, and gathering. A vein pulsed blue on her pale forehead, the color of concentration. Of course, the dress wasn't perfect. The hem dropped slightly in the back, a flaw easily interpreted as a deliberate stroke of style. Even her mistakes were meticulous. Sprawled in the hot, dim hallway, I hiked my skirt up and draped the paisley over my bare legs. So cool and soft. Nate never understood Celia, but he loved that dress. I tipped my head back, recalling how his hand strayed to my lap under the restaurant table, wedding band grazing my thigh as he worried the silky bronze fringe between his fingers. That was before. And now? Nate. Gone. Celia. Gone. Me. Alone. With a breathalyzer in my car and all my seams coming apart. I dragged myself off the floor and walked down the hall, arms out, fingers brushing the walls on either side. I wanted to go home and have a drink. Vodka with a splash of lime or some other dilutive technicality. Instead, I locked the front door, switched off the lights, and made my way upstairs, 
gathering up an endless bridal train of tulle as I went. In the sewing room, silvered by moonlight, Dolly stood on her pedestal, facing the door. Had I left her that way? I dumped the bundle of tulle in the corner and approached. Sorry about earlier. I gently twisted the dials on her chest, waist, and hips. Guess I'm a little jealous. She never talked to me the way she talked to you. I closed Dolly right up to a size zero, approximating Celia's petite dimensions. The waist still wasn't small enough. My sister wore steel-boned corsets that, over the course of two decades, had irreparably mutilated her ribcage. She never denied being self-destructive. She just didn't think it was a problem. Celia, you can't live on alphabet soup. But I like it. It's not about what you like. Wearing a torture device that forces you into a liquid diet is not healthy. I held a can of Campbell's in each hand. Celia cocked her hip, emphasizing the brutally cinched middle under her polka dot shirtwaist. If anyone drinks too much, Minnie, it's you. I tightened my grip on the soup cans. Do you have any idea what I'm going through right now? Nate moved out. Work is bad. I'm not sleeping. And now I'm worried about you not eating. I know, Minnie. I know, I know. Her hands reached up to cool my cheeks. I leaned into her and dropped my head on her shoulder. I let my delicate doll of a sister hold me up and stroke my hair. You worry too much. Why can't you believe that I'm happy? Just because you don't understand the way I live? That was the worst part. I did understand. I just couldn't accept it. Saving Celia from Celia had been my purpose since I could remember. Since Grandma died, I'd sacrificed a career, friends, and probably my marriage to make sure my sister showered at least once a week, turned off her stove, and paid her utility bills. I put the sprinkler on her grass in the summer, turned her furnace on in the winter, and kept her hoarding in check all year round. Most importantly, I found those clever mistakes in her work. But what if Celia didn't need saving? A person who truly intended to kill herself would not be dissuaded, no matter how many shoddy blanket stitches I pointed out. Dolly's minimized form detached easily from the pedestal, and I carried her into Celia's bedroom where the quilt was thrown back in a jumble, the depression of her body still outlined on the bottom sheet. I shed my clothes and crawled into the twin bed, pulling Dolly in with me under the covers. I turned my nose into the pillow. The sheets were dirty, saturated with the smell of Celia's hair and sweat. A good smell on account of the fact that even at age 35, Celia perspired like a child. Honey and salt, grimy and golden, like the food you buy at a fairground. I hugged Dolly's unyielding flesh, wetting her canvas skin with my tears. I imagined her phantom arms holding me the way I'd held Celia after every failed attempt at perfection, each slender stay 
execution. She promised she wouldn't leave, not without saying goodbye. The only promise she'd ever made, to my knowledge. I drifted off knowing that, somehow, I had failed her. A gale rattled the window panes and shrieked under the eaves of Grandma's house. I rolled on my side, facing the wall, even as I heard a whimper, the rustle of blankets, and the slap, slap, slap of bare feet. Nine-year-old Celia clambered into my bed and squirmed up against my back. I felt the chill of her through my jammies. Cold-blooded she was, like a reptile warming only to the temperature of her immediate environment. A spray of lightning threw Dolly's eerily stretched silhouette against the wall. Celia shoved her face between my shoulder blades. Min, I'm scared. It's just a storm. Can I sleep with you? (sighs) You're too old to be crawling into my bed every time it rains. Dolly says you can protect me. I looked over my shoulder at the dress form standing by the closet. I hated her. Hated that she shared our room. Shadow rivulets of rain trickled down her body. Then her dials began to turn. I went rigid as her seams opened wider and wider, until the stuff inside, the black blood that made her dolly, rather than just a dress form, poured out in sheets. It's okay. I wound my arms around her quaking little body. Don't be scared. I'll keep you safe. I woke up shivering in a bright pool of sunlight from the east-facing window. Oh, fuck. My head was full of mud and my mouth dry as talc. The worst hangover in history, and I'd consumed not a drop of alcohol. Bad dreams will do that to you. Which probably explained why I drank so much in the first place. Dolly? I flipped through the covers, searching for my best frenemy, as if she were as easily lost in the sheets as an iPhone, which just then buzzed from the pile of clothes I'd left on the floor. I hand-walked off the bed far enough to grab the phone out of my skirt pocket and then retreated back under the covers. Hey. Hey, did I wake you? Yeah. I thought I might as well let him feel bad about it. Got kinda late last night, so I stayed over. Are you sure that's such a good idea? Jesus. The only contact we've had in weeks has been through our lawyers. And now you're concerned with what's good for me? Why don't I come over, bring coffee, some food maybe, and help you clear out all that garbage? A part of me, a large, lonely part, wanted to say yes. Wanted to fill the hole in my heart with something, anything, even Nate. But rage got there first. Garbage? Where do you get off calling her life garbage? Minnie... His misguided use of the sisterly appellation sealed his doom. I leapt out of bed and paced back and forth between the closet and the window, righteously indignant in my panties. You left me, Nate, because you didn't want to share. 
Now you think that because I don't have to look after her anymore, you can stampede back into my life and everything will be perfect? I left because you wouldn't listen to reason. I, I couldn't watch you get dragged down with her. So if Celia's death gives you a chance to really live for the first time, then yeah, maybe I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. Go to hell, you son of a bitch! I cranked the window open, punched out the screen, and chucked the phone into the clear blue sky. A second later, I heard it pong against the dumpster below. Not hell, but close enough. I stomped into the bathroom and turned on the shower. Hot water slowly rumbled through the old pipes. Gave me time to think. Nate hadn't deserved that, but I wasn't exactly sorry for saying it. I needed to assign fault and unleash my emotional hurricane on someone. Nate saw Celia as the root of all my problems, which made him sort of stupid. He sneered at my devotion to the only family I had, which made him sort of mean. The mirror fogged over. I pulled back the shower curtain and stepped into the grungy tub, finding half a bar of ivory soap and a lime-scaled razor in the dish. Objects in situ. After my shower, I wrapped myself in a cleanish towel and used Celia's toothbrush. I didn't relish the idea of slipping back into my sweaty clothes from yesterday, but none of Celia's tween-sized get-ups would fit. I stepped out of the bathroom and into a long shadow reaching out of the sewing room door. My heart clobbered my sternum, and I tightened the musty towel around my chest. The shadow shifted slightly. Celia? My voice burned off my lips like morning fog. I didn't expect a reply from my dead sister, but was nevertheless disappointed by the answering silence. I took three steps forward and pushed the sewing room door wide open. Oh, there you are. Dolly, back on her pedestal. And this time, she wasn't naked. I supposed I could have done it. Sleepwalking or some such. Or someone could have broken in, pulled Dolly from my sleep-dead arms and dressed her up. Hell, as long as I was flinging ridiculous hypotheticals, Dolly might have managed it herself with her no arms. I ought to have been scared. Except the how of it didn't seem to matter as much as the why. A breeze from the open window feathered my damp hair. <laughs> I was wrong. The dress wasn't pink. And of all the colors in the kaleidoscope Celia worked in, I'd never once known her to eschew color altogether. But there it was. A full-skirted gown of black silk draped and swirled in dramatic arcs, shivering in the draft like an obsidian butterfly. No weapon could have looked more lethal. The plunging neckline exposed the reopened seam bisecting Dolly's chest. I didn't have to see her dials to know the measurements. 35, 27, 37. I dropped my towel. Lots of women wore a size six, but this was no coincidence. Carefully, I lifted the gown off Dolly and dropped it over my head. Cool silk whispered against my skin. 
Unlike the spotty bathroom mirror, the full-length glass in the sewing room gleamed pristine silver. I pulled up the side zipper and studied the dress from every angle. A flawless fit. The dress that murdered my sister was made for me. Its living curves transformed me into the cruel beauty I'd always been on the inside. I slid my hand through folds of midnight and into the pocket I knew I'd find there. Something pricked my finger. I pulled out a gold needle stuck through a spool of black thread. She'd left it in the pocket. For me. I stared at that spool for a long time until I could no longer avoid the obvious conclusion. Celia's accident was really just an accident. She didn't break her promise. Somewhere on this black beauty, I would find something left undone or poorly finished. I fell to my knees, skirt billowing around me. I pulled the hemline through my fingers inch by inch, examining every fine stitch until I found it, a pinky's width of raw edge. No one was perfect, but this dress could be. I could finish what my brilliantly insane little sister had come so close to accomplishing. Celia wanted this. She needed it. Actually, Celia doesn't need anything on account of her being dead. Remember? You ID'd her body. She's dead. Your sister is dead. No matter how many times I slapped myself with the words, they never penetrated. My brain couldn't unravel me from her, couldn't stitch together a reality in which I was alive and my sister was not. All of these years, I tried to save her. I gazed up at the dress form with her cracked open seams. She was the one who'd understood, and I'd held her in such contempt. I reached up and stroked her hard hip. Thank you, Dolly. Then I licked the end of the thread, slid it through the eye of the needle, and with more precision than I'd applied to anything else in my life, I finished the hem, double knot on the last stitch, just like Grandma taught us. I lifted the scissors off their designated hook above the work table, pulled the dangling thread tight. Snip. I twirled slowly in front of the mirror, admiring how the sunlight died a shimmering death on contact with black silk. I twirled once more. Then I placed the still-threaded needle on the back of my tongue and swallowed. You can't go home again, that's what Thomas Wolfe said. And for the man we meet in this tale, shared with us by author Liam Hogan, going back to where he came from is something he's trying very hard to avoid. 
But sometimes the people and places you've left behind can have other plans. Performing this tale is Peter Lewis. So keep walking, keep your head down, and never look back, especially when you're the last man. If it had been a crossroads, I'd have kept on north, kept putting the miles between me and what and where I was running from. But it wasn't. It was a T-junction, the lonely road coming to an abrupt stop. Two equally desolate strips of asphalt running at right angles, one east, one west. No road signs, no distances to the nearest town, no street names. Nothing. A low barbed wire fence wasn't much of an obstacle, but burnt stubble stretched out to the gray distant horizon. There was nothing for me there. I... I had to stop burning my bridges. The memory of screamed curses, the heavy thud of heavy men running to her aid, the blood damp against the thin cuff of my leather jacket, dried now, dried and stiffened but still there. An accident, of course. A a simple misunderstanding gotten out of hand. A slap provoking my explosive reaction. Funny how often accidents can happen to one man. Maybe the witch was right. Maybe I was trouble, and maybe I was going to hell. But I'd kind of like to find my way out of Montana first. So, east or west... If I had a coin, I'd have flipped it. There wasn't anything else to decide it on. The road stretched out to the same gray horizon, a hint of distant mountains, the Rockies perhaps, but not for considerably more miles than I could walk. Not without food and water and rest. The only place I knew for sure I'd find any of those things was two hours back the way I'd come. And I'd get no welcome there, not after what I'd done. I'd left town at dawn, having spent the remains of the night skulking behind a dumpster, and since then I hadn't seen anybody. No cars, no farmers, no one. Mankind may as well have been wiped off the face of the earth. With me, the undeserved last man, the last anything. No cattle, no birds, no nothing bleak and desolate. I'd been wary of cars coming up behind, worried someone might give chase. For any other traffic, I'd have been hitching a lift, going any which way, getting the hell out. I slipped off my shoe, shook loose a piece of grit, tapped my last cigarette from the crumpled pack. Squatting by the dusty scrub of the curb, reluctant to sit, I thumbed the wheel of the plastic lighter, shielding it against the mournful wind, sucking deeply as it caught. I took time over my smoke, a chance to see if this road was as quiet as the other, and not yet having settled on a direction I was in no particular hurry, the day was still young. I should have known not to get mixed up with her. 
I always was attracted to exotic types. Black hair down to her slim waist, almond eyes of glittering green, skin burnished gold. I'd wondered if she was Latino or Native American. Indian turned out to be right, but the other sort, born in the shadows of the Himalayas, an awfully long way from home. The barman had seen me stare, had answered my questions with obvious reluctance, had told me not to mess with Zia. His tattooed fingers made the sign of the horns, emphasizing his warning. She likes heavy metal? <laughs> oh, the quip successfully undid all the work I'd put in to encourage a generous free pour, but that didn't matter anymore. By then I had a new windmill to tilt at. When the Marlboro was burnt down to the filter, I flicked the butt across the road, spun the empty red pack into the long grass. Rising, I spat into the dirt, a sour taste of whiskey brought back by the hit of nicotine. I stood tall and looked both ways, hoping for the distant glint of a car, or better yet, a truck. Nothing. Not even a heat mirage to give me false hope. The sun was just beginning to crack through the sullen clouds. Maybe it would brighten later. So I headed left, west, with the sun to my side and out of my eyes, until noon at least. Hopefully I'd be somewhere else by then. It was an hour's dull trudge before I came to the next T-junction. The same situation. A burnt field of stubble ahead, two roads left and right. Still no signs, still no cars. Without breaking step, I turned right. I didn't want to complete the square, wind up back where I'd started. That wouldn't be good for my health. Another hour, another T-junction. T standing for tedious. <laughs> I stopped undid my fly and let loose a dribble of too yellow piss, which landed on an empty, crumpled Marlboro cigarette pack. I looked back over my shoulder. There wasn't anything to hang my eye on. It all, it all looked the same. But it couldn't be, could it? Slowly, I re-zipped, wandered over to the opposite side of the road, and scanned the boundary between asphalt and dirt. The burnt-down-to-the-filter nub of a cigarette grinned back at me. I was getting spooked. It wasn't like cigarette butts or even Marlboro packs were exactly rare. I'd most likely find such trash along with fading cans of bud on the curb of any road, even one as unfrequented as this, wouldn't I? It was past noon, the day warming up, summer's last hurrah. It wouldn't be long until fall colors set in anywhere well, anywhere there were trees, rather than just the dismal remnants of a harvested crop stretching in all directions. The clouds had been shredded, but not dispersed. Up ahead, some loomed gray, threatening rain. That could only make a bad day worse. I chewed my lip. Whether this was that first T-junction or not, I was still faced with the same two choices, east or west. 
This time I went east. An hour later I was staring down at that damned crumpled pack. Now the only way I could figure it is if the road was one great big circle so large that it didn't look anything but straight, the same way the earth looks flat unless you're up high. But why would such a road exist? What did it serve? There hadn't been a single turning, not even a dirt track to some lonely farm. And that was a problem. For the road to end at the same T-junction both ways, without there being any other turnings, it'd have to be some crazy Escher drawing, an impossible Mobius strip of asphalt. I spent a while scratching figure eights in the dust with the toe of my shoe, but nothing made sense. That second turning, when I hadn't stopped, I just headed what I'd thought was north, had that been the same junction as the first? As the last two? And if not, then the picture wasn't what I was failing to draw. Dry swallowing, I felt a rough edge to my lips. I tasted iron. Whether it was the sun or the wind, I wasn't sure, but this had stopped being fun a while back. How long could I go without water? Twelve hours. A day. Two. Still, there was no point in panicking, not yet. The, uh, the sun didn't move that much in an hour. I'd, I'd use my shadow as a landmark, keep it to my right and just behind me, and I couldn't possibly go round in a circle again. Okay, okay. I set off, heading west too fast at first, and then once the junction had faded out of sight, slackening to a more relaxed pace as the monotony of the view took over. Despite my casual speed, my heart was racing as I approached the next junction, looking for differences and looking for that damned red pack. The sun had stayed at my side, so it was, of course, impossible for it to be there. But still, there it was. I prodded it out into the middle of the road. I stamped it flat and then spun and savagely kicked at it, scuffing my shoe. Anger flaring and, because there wasn't anything else around to kick, fading. When someone slaps you, and it doesn't matter who, you're going to react, to slap back with added interest. And sure, maybe that's not always the wise thing, and it certainly doesn't help you get the girl, but it's not the end of the world, it's not the worst a man can do. But when she's screaming into my face, calling me all the names under the sun, telling me how she's got people, her 12 followers, who will mess me up so bad even my bitch of a mother wouldn't recognize me, and then when she spits the saliva thick with blood, I, I overreacted, just as I always damn well overreact, but it on herself. You don't spit at a man on a short fuse. Open hands clenched into fists. I still figured she'd come out of it better than I had. She'd recover. Maybe she'd be a little bit more polite, more respectful next time. Whereas I'd lost my bag and my wallet, everything I owned in the world, 
little though that was, I stepped over the barbed wire. The soil was packed dry, the autumn rains yet to descend. I'd keep going north, ignore the damned stupid roads. It was late afternoon when I came to a barbed wire fence, to a T-junction. I chewed at a hangnail. No sign of the cigarette pack. <sighs> Not until I remembered I'd kicked it away. Not until I crossed to the other side to find the flattened, misshaped box propped up by the corner fence post. But that was insane. Impossible. Even though it was currently behind the clouds, the sun had been on my back all the way. I could still feel the warmth on my bare neck. And then the, the clouds parted. And there was my shadow, right where the sun should be. I howled into that big sky until I felt the expletives rasp against my throat, swallowed painfully, realizing it was doing me no good. Exhaustion was messing with my head. I, I must have walked in a circle. I, I must have not been paying enough damn attention. I'd once stood on a wide, empty beach in the middle of winter closed my eyes and attempted to walk straight. And, and whether it was the wind, the barely perceptible slope, or it was, it was just an impossible task, by the time I'd counted to a hundred steps, opened my eyes and looked back, a long line of footsteps curved away behind me. Same thing here. With nothing to set my sights on, I'd I'd just gone in a big arc, one that brought me back exactly where I'd started. I spiked the pack on the barbed wire and set out again, deliberately at an angle, kicking at the blackened stalks until the soot covered the scrapes in my shoe leather, stumbling in the tractor ruts. It was just a field. How big could one field be? I saw the red pack hanging by a wire in the gathering gloom ahead as the first spots of heavy rain began to fall, threatening to turn the field into a mire. I turned my face to the gunmetal sky, opening my parched throat for what scant relief it offered. It was dark when I gave up trying to work it all out. Dark. With my feet blistered, my stomach passed empty, my damp frame shivering against the sudden cold. Dark when I escaped purgatory and finally took that third option of the D. South. The only option I'd ever actually had. Back the way I'd come. Back to Zia. To a town turned against me. Back to... Rough justice. Two hours it had taken coming out to that damned T-junction in the middle of nowhere. It took me a lot longer limping back. It was near midnight when I saw the glow lighting up the horizon. In the end, the smoke and the flames and the dark forms of a dozen almost men, her followers, spread waiting across the road. Hell, they're not any surprise at all.
Sometimes it's all too easy to look at something you're not supposed to. Driving past a traffic accident, someone changing in front of their open window. Most of us resist the temptation to keep staring and manage to look away. But the man in this tale, shared with us by author Ethan Hallstrom, just can't stop watching. So join me as I share this tale with you, and we keep looking, watching, and staring as we become the voyeur. Before I start, I'm going to come right out and say that I know that this story doesn't make me look that great. I understand that what I was doing, what got me into this in the first place, it was wrong. There was no malice behind it, no voyeuristic sexuality involved, but I get it. Watching all those people invading their privacy so deeply, it was a creepy thing to do. Does that mean I deserve what happened? I don't think so. I hope not, at least. What I did was technically criminal, sure, but I can't shake the feeling that I've been sentenced to pay for it with my life. Unlike most on death row, though, I don't have the luxury of knowing the exact date of my punishment. All I have to go on is the vague sense of mortal dread that's been tugging at my gut more and more throughout the last few days. The sickening, nauseous plunge my heart takes into my groin every time I so much as glance at my bedroom window, even with its curtains drawn and its lock latched, is how I know that I'm going to die, and almost definitely soon. Sure, there's more I could do to prevent it. Maybe I could alert the authorities, try and go to the hospital, or maybe even jail. Anywhere with surveillance and people and no goddamn windows. But I've never been very good at taking action. I'm really much more of a spectator. I suffer from what a therapist once described as crippling agoraphobia. It started out as a vague fear of crowds in public places that, following the car crash that claimed my mother's life and my own physical mobility, metastasized into a paralyzing, overwhelming aversion to human contact. My phobia has swelled and sprawled since then, gradually reducing me from a nervous wreck to a social invalid to a full-blown hermit. I live in a small uptown apartment, a sparse studio that I can luckily just barely manage to maintain on a spotty freelance writer's salary and monthly disability checks. I don't exactly get out much. I can't stand the thought of running into a stranger or, God help me, strangers. The mental image of pairs of eyes trained on me, taking in my patchy facial hair and greasy complexion and clumsy leg braces, stares hiding anything from pity to judgment to outright revulsion. It fills me with an almost immediate panic. So to avoid that, I do the easy thing. I stay inside. I leave my apartment maybe three times a month, four if I'm fielding an emergency. I go out at three-ish in the morning, walk a few blocks down to the CVS and pick up basic necessities, ramen, toilet paper, maybe some chips if I'm feeling frivolous. I use the self-checkout and pile everything into a bag myself and I hurry home. 
It's been maybe two entire years since I last talked to someone who wasn't delivering me takeout or expecting a rent check. Unfortunately, even I'm not completely asocial. Deep down, buried under a painful, self-perpetuating snowball of neuroses, I'm still a person, still completely subject to a basic need for human interaction. For a while, I filled that hole with podcasts and light TV, then online chat rooms, then an anonymous email-based pen pal service, but those all grew to feel insubstantial after a while. They left me feeling empty, like I'd tried to satisfy hunger with chewing gum. One desperate evening, I stumbled across a method for viewing unsecured webcams remotely and almost completely inconspicuously, and I knew almost immediately that I'd found my outlet. Well, okay. Stumbled upon is being a bit facetious. I looked it up. Again, I know how creepy this appears on the surface, and I'm aware how morally iffy the practice is, but you need to understand that I was at the end of my rope in many ways, emotionally. I wouldn't say I was on the verge of outright suicide. That was too active, too messy. But I think I had it in me to just give up. I was very close to crawling into bed and never coming back out. It was a dark time in my life, and and this webcam trick was a Hail Mary attempt to trick my diseased monkey brain into thinking I was socializing again, participating with other members of my species. And it worked. Though I'm sure I look pretty similar to the stereotype of the greasy anti-social computer hacker, I'm not actually amazing with computers, which speaks to how disturbingly easy the process of accessing these random webcams was. Most of the cameras were public-use, CCTV-type things, usually pointed at street corners or parking lots. Those were rarely very interesting. Even still, I was able to worm my way into quite a few personal webcams, usually affixed to laptops or the occasional home desktop. I saw a lot of bedrooms, a lot of dorms, a few kitchens or living rooms. More often than not, the space I peeped at would be empty at first and I often bookmarked interesting ones to come back and check later for human activity. I ended up watching probably upwards of a hundred people, keeping a rotating cast of a dozen or so that I found particularly entertaining. An old man with three pet birds in his bedroom who seemed to spend most of his time writing in a leather-bound notebook and hand-feeding his pet's sunflower seeds. A diminutive Japanese woman with a genuinely impressive commitment to yoga, A university student who alternated between poring over complicated-looking architecture homework and smoking weed with a constantly shifting parade of boyfriends. And, yeah, sure, cards on the table. I watched a few people have sex. Yes, 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 that was wrong of me to do, but I feel the need to say that I didn't do that out of anything other than detached interest, hand to God. My libido's about as dormant as Yellowstone at this point. I also watched plenty of eating. I saw an overwhelming amount of cereal eaten by people from all walks of life. Seriously, cereal is insanely popular. Anyways, reading, aimless web surfing, talking, exercising, relaxing, cleaning, and sleeping. Mostly sleeping. 
It got to the point where I struggled to doze off if I didn't have a feed of some stranger sleeping playing on my monitor. It was comforting in an elemental way. It didn't eliminate my self-imposed loneliness, but it dulled the pain, made it manageable. Ironic that it was probably the most innocent aspect of my little one-man peep show that ended up dooming me. It was late one night, late even for me, and at this point I was almost entirely nocturnal. I was shifting through my list of bookmarked webcams, looking for something to put on while I turned in. Most of my usual favorites were off the table that night. Either their laptops were put away, or they were pointed in the wrong direction, or the subjects themselves were either obstructed by something or gone from the room entirely. So I dove back into the raw feed of new potential cams, clicking past parking lot after parking lot after abandoned computer lab after parking lot until I came across one that caught my attention. On my screen, I saw a youngish woman, maybe in her mid-twenties, kneeling on her sheets, peering out of the window set into the wall right above her bed. Something about the way she was sitting, the nervous, insecure folding of her arms, the hunched shoulders, the, uh, I don't know, the wary, almost defensive way she was peeking out of the window, it caught me off guard. I'm not the most socially intuitive person in the world, but even I could read the obvious body language on display here. This girl was scared. Her room was decently well lit, considering the lateness of the hour. Between the lava lamp on her bedside table and the several yards of Christmassy lights strung up on the ceiling, I could make out most of the room. It was tidy in a crowded way, packed with neatly arranged stacks of books and baskets of laundry. The fidelity of the camera was high, so her computer must have been relatively new. And between that and the fancy four-poster that she was kneeling on, I got the sense that this woman was very successful. An observation that made her shivering, fretful vigil at the window seem even more unusual. I mean, what was she looking at? The woman made a few more attempts at looking outside, taking quick, bird-like glances through the glass before ducking back behind her wall. She kept this up for maybe another half an hour before eventually settling back into bed, clutching her covers in tight fists, eyes clenched shut. I kept watching. Something about the surreality of the situation had jostled the exhaustion out of me. My pulse had picked up inexplicably, and I found that I was sweating a bit. I pulled up a cheery sitcom on another monitor and waited, glancing back toward the girl every few minutes. Around dawn, I saw her jolt awake, head whipping around to face the window. I couldn't hear anything, I only had access to the webcam's visuals, not the audio, but the way she sat... Head tilted to the side, hands held out, still and tense, was the picture of someone straining to hear something. Whatever noise had woken her up must have sounded again because she jumped, scooting away from the wall and climbing out of her bed, eyes fixed on the window. Without looking down, she fumbled with her bedside table, grasping for her phone. She brought it to her face, she dialed a number and backed out of the webcam's field of vision. I watched that feed well past daybreak until I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore. 
She never re-entered the frame, never opened the blinds, and I went to bed completely bewildered by what I'd seen. I rested fitfully. I think I had a nightmare, but when I woke up that evening, I couldn't recall the details. I continued to tune into this girl's webcam several times a night, hoping I'd see something that might explain what had so terrified this woman. Nearly a week later, I caught her staring out her window again, phone held in one hand, ready to be dialed, but usually I'd just see her sleeping soundly or occasionally watching TV. Whatever had startled her before failed to show up, at least at first. One night, I tuned in to see her room shrouded in uncharacteristic darkness. Normally, the woman slept with those Christmas lights on, but for the first time that I'd seen, she had a man over, and he must have insisted they sleep in the dark. I imagine they came to a compromise because the lava lamp was still on, casting shifting, meager orange light around the room. The window's blinds had been left open, from what I could tell. It was too dark outside to make out any details past the glass, but for whatever reason, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. Something about the window seemed off, and I don't think it was the fact that it was the first time I'd seen it open. The darkness outside, it was bugging me. A cold, roiling anxiety sprouted in my gut, making me shiver as I squinted at the dark pixels. I thought for a second that I caught something glinting in the shadows just outside the glass, but if I did, it was impossibly brief and incredibly slight. Nothing that the woman's PC webcam, as nice as it was, was outfitted to capture clearly. Out of curiosity, nothing more, I took a few screenshots and pulled them up in a photo editor. I played with the contrast and saturation a bit, pausing every few minutes to check back in on the webcam feed. Most of the screenshots belied nothing out of the ordinary, even with extensive tinkering, but cranking up the brightness on one revealed a twin pair of white dots, barely a few pixels in diameter, floating in the center of the dark window. These dots could have been anything, from video artifacts to insects. Hell, chances are they were the product of my own tampering with the image, but I couldn't get them out of my mind. When I went to sleep that night... I dreamed of eyes and shadows. When I checked the webcam the next night, the room was even darker than last time. The lava lamp had been turned off. Squinting at the image, I could just make out the dark outline of the window, backlit by thin moonlight. The blinds were gone, not just unshuttered, but completely missing, leaving the window bare, exposing the glass. No, 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 wait. The window was open. I could see it now. I could just barely make out the white lip of the bottom pane pulled up to its highest point, exposing the room to the night with no apparent screen or barrier. I couldn't make out anything else in the room. Couldn't even see if the woman was home. The moonlight was too dim. The webcam too limited. I started to get that anxious feeling again, looking into the dark of her room, and before I could reconsider, I exited the surveillance program, wheeling backwards from the chair. Somehow I knew that scanning the darkness again would do nothing but further disturb me, and I felt moments away from a panic attack as it was. 
Looking back, I didn't have any concrete reason for this panic, nothing specific that I could point to. People open their windows plenty often, it doesn't mean anything. But somehow, instinctively, I knew to be worried. I checked back in on her at dawn. Now that the sun was out, I could clearly make out everything in her room. The window was indeed open, the blinds completely missing from the frame. The floor and shelves were as neat and busy as always, almost entirely undisturbed. The bed, though, hmm, the bed was a mess. The blankets and sheets were piled in a tangled lump in the middle of the mattress, and a half-dozen throw pillows that usually lined the bed frame were lying in scattered disarray. I couldn't tell if the pile in the bed concealed a sleeping person or not. The comforter was too bulky, the shape too ambiguous. There was a brownish splotch on one of the pillows that I could have sworn wasn't there before, one that looked not unlike a stain. When I checked back in the evening, nothing had changed. The bed remained messy, the lump was still there. When I looked at dusk and saw the same image again, I felt my mouth grow dry and my stomach drop. I grew more and more confident that there was someone in that bed and they hadn't moved an inch in nearly 24 hours. Oh, I should have called the police. I know that. But then what would I have said? I knew nothing about where the woman lived. I still don't, other than the fact that she must have occupied roughly the same time zone as me. Maybe the police could have used her IP address to narrow things down, but then I'd have had to provide that, wouldn't I? And I'm sure what I was doing was illegal, if not exactly something you'd get life in Alcatraz for. And then, of course, a police call would have involved interaction, face-to-face contact with probably half a dozen strangers over the course of maybe a few days, stressful conversations, tense ones. So I chickened out. I did the cowardly thing and I kept watching. I tuned in around two in the morning that night, and this time I swallowed the fear seeping up my throat like bile and scrutinized the hell out of the darkness on my screen. It was a full moon that night, and her window must have been facing west because the room was surprisingly well lit in comparison to how it had been the night previous. Silvery white light silhouetted the major features of the room, a space I had come to be intimately familiar with over the last few weeks. The bed was different, that was the first thing I noticed. The mass in the covers was still there, but something rested atop of it. An egg-shaped blot of grey-black shadow. It was shifting almost imperceptibly, rocking back and forth, so I knew it was animate. At first I assumed it was the woman. If she'd been sitting feral atop her bed, then it might have been roughly the right size. But something about the way it moved made that hard to believe. It was writhing, shuddering a few inches back and forth with manic quickness. There was a release of some sort, a sudden relief of tension, and the shape rocked back, a limb-like protrusion drawing back from the bed. Something clutched in it. It had been pulling on something had torn something off, and now the limb was bringing it back to the center of the mass. It was then that I noticed the twin white dots, again almost too small to be recognizable, set into the center of the shape. 
The instant I found them, the form ceased all movement, becoming instantly still. My heart burned in my chest as the dots slowly rose, fixing themselves in the direction of the webcam. The shape extended another limb toward the bed and began violently tugging, ripping at whatever the sheets were concealing, the dots still fixed on the camera. On. Me. It was too much. I turned off my monitor with a shaking hand, then unplugged my PC. I bit back the urge to vomit and instead worked on keeping my breathing regular, my heart rate down. Again, I found myself struggling with the idea of calling the authorities. I could take a fine, I could take some minimum security prison time if they let me remain isolated. It was obvious that whatever I'd stumbled into was bigger than anything I was equipped to deal with. There was danger here, vague and hard to define. There was something primal about the fear I felt. The terror of a prey animal squinting its eyes and straining its ears trying to determine if there was a predator in the bush. I made the mistake of waiting. I made the mistake of turning my computer back on. I made the mistake of pulling up my surveillance program and making my way onto the woman's feed. It was morning now, and I wanted to check one last time to help me decide if I should get a third party involved. I blinked at the screen. I leaned toward my monitor, gawking in disbelief, and then recoiled when I came to recognize what I was seeing. I screamed. Sitting in the woman's open window, perched haphazardly on the sill, was the woman's head. Her face, a slack, unmoving grimace, was still perfectly recognizable, but her throat was little more than brutalized meat. The head hadn't been cut off. It had been torn from its body ripped unceremoniously from its base and enshrined on the window like some perverted trophy. It was turned to face the webcam. The woman's half-lidded eyes set to stare unblinkingly into my own. Everything about it looked deliberate, looked like a message. I see you. I still haven't called anyone. It's classic me, really. I'm too paralyzed by my fears and neuroses, by my own crippling inabilities to do anything but watch and wait. Something tapped on my window in my bedroom tonight. I can't open it. I refuse to. I can't run either. I can't hide. So I'm going to watch... And I'm going to wait. There it is again. No. No, oh God. God, no.
In our final tale, we meet a woman who's achieved what most people dream of, escaping her hometown. But in this tale, shared with us by author B.D. Zamia, despite her becoming a distinguished physicist, the place she grew up in still has its claws in her. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin and Jesse Cornett. So return to the hometown and prepare to be greeted with open arms, especially if they promise to bestow on you the skeleton key to the city. In the tragical history of the life and death of Dr. Faustus, it is revealed to the titular character that the demon Mephistopheles came to him not for his interest in the divine and necromancy, but rather his ultimate renunciation of God and scripture. I won't go so far as to admit that I paid attention all that well when this play was read in 10th grade English class, but after the events of my grand visit to the town of Lancaster, my interest was piqued, and I picked up my tattered, highlighted copy once more, looking for some meaning, some corroboration. And in that regard, it was comfort to me, but also provided a number of bone-chilling realizations. Obviously, the play was written in a period where the ultimate lesson is that of a parable. Don't stray from the Lord and his teachings. Don't dabble in black magic or devil summoning, and don't give in to pride and hubris. A sweet, savory moral to condense into a few words, rinse and repeat in whatever fable you may use to convey it. But I would like to believe that its author had other intentions in mind upon writing Dr. Faustus into life. Perhaps that sometimes you yourself don't go looking for trouble. Sometimes it comes looking for you. Dr. Faustus could be read as an intelligent, headstrong individual whose only crime was seeking infinite knowledge in a finite lifespan. The avenues of learning and wisdom taking him down a path that would seem promising to quite literally anyone before the consequences were truly revealed. And maybe it is my forgiving nature, but I want to believe that about Lancaster, more specifically Herbert Lancaster the founder of my hometown. A Puritan who arrived in the 1600s with his family and a few followers in tow. Herbert was widely hailed as a visionary, a more forward-thinking local leader of his time. He and the rest of the settlers were motivated by the promise of freedom to practice their religion, construct a new society better suited to their lifestyles, and free from the ritual of Roman Catholicism. Herbert Lancaster took it a few steps further, seeking to build a town that would live in harmony with the land and its native inhabitants, humans, animals, and plants alike. Though his followers were few, they were devoted and proud, and they settled in the outskirts of a small pocket of woods in present-day Rhode Island. Even today, it is hardly bustling and surprisingly insulated still. Most of the residents know most everyone and everything that goes on, and most can even trace their lineage back to the settlers, directly or not. My family no exception. I was born in Lancaster, 
but my mother had moved here from Orange County with my late father when they first got married. He had been raised in Lancaster and could trace his ancestry back to one of the original settlers. Growing up, I could tolerate the size. In retrospect, I lived a very spoiled childhood in that I grew up in the epitome of a safe haven. I was free to wander most places of the town without fear of something awful happening. Cars would mosey on by at a steady pace, even on the main roads. Violent crime was unheard of. I knew everyone, from the owners of the co-op grocery store to the high schoolers working the ticket booth at the cinema. If I got lost or snuck off somewhere, the ever-present, intricately constructed town phone tree was always abuzz with information, and my whereabouts would travel back to my mother, nearly at the speed a text message could. It was, in a word, ridiculous. So much so that I had had enough once I reached high school, and wanted my presence and activities to not always be known. I grew to resent Lancaster and the isolated lifestyles in which people lived. Content with taking over the family business or attending the state college, only to move back with no change but a degree. I was restless, and I was tired of small-town life. Tired of having next to no privacy or anonymity. I resolved early on to get as far away as I could. The quickest way to do that? College. I channeled my listlessness into my studies and spent a good chunk of the rest of my free time researching schools that would offer substantial merit aid in climates and locations opposite that of New England's, in big cities with people that dotted the busy streets like ants. I eventually settled on one of the Claremont McKenna schools in California. It was perfect. I wasted no time in submitting my application. With the gradual approval from my mom, who thought it a good opportunity to visit me and the rest of her family occasionally. I was accepted early decision, and soon after graduation, without much fanfare, I boarded the plane to California, brimming with excitement at the prospect of a new home and a new beginning. Long story short, I loved my time there, and I excelled in my studies, zeroing in on the field of physics pretty quickly. I graduated summa cum laude and immediately went to work as a grad student in a lab that specialized in particle physics. My research took me down the avenue of theoretical and quantum physics, and I co-authored a few publications during my studies, one of which earned me and my co-authors a prestigious award within the scientific community. This is a rather long-winded explanation of how I ended up back in Lancaster, a town I swore I'd never return to again. My mother had since moved back to Orange, so I had no other ties to it. In a prime example of terrible irony... News traveled back and spread amongst folks in Lancaster of my achievements and contributions to the field. By word of mouth, the news had reached the municipal level, and the mayor himself decided to arrange for a celebration. When I received the gold-printed invitation calling me to enjoy an afternoon of recognition and celebration of your achievements and the great honor you have bestowed upon your hometown, I nearly threw it in the recycling only to be intercepted by my mom. 
In a very motherly fashion, she goaded and guilted me into accepting, and soon the plane tickets were purchased. The day of, I had a knot in my stomach. It was a sweltering July afternoon, and though I had chosen the breeziest, most lightweight dress I owned, I could feel the East Coast humidity cling to my skin, which prickled and itched in the heat. I was restless and nervous, never one for public speaking and wanting desperately to get the ceremony over with. I sat on a folding chair on a raised platform next to three other speakers, including my high school calculus teacher, the one person I had bothered to keep in touch with, my mom, and someone who worked for the Lancaster town government. I wasn't paying attention when his title was read. The crowd was a decent size, with every seat filled. Maybe about 40 people. Like I said, small town. The mayor, a tall, bronzed, middle-aged man by the name of Dan Cohn, was delivering some words of introduction, listing off my achievements and my history at Lancaster. I had long since tuned him out, trying instead to focus on the prepared statement I'd written. My moment to speak came before I could even comprehend it. The mayor turned halfway towards me and motioned for me to come forward. It is my great honor to <laughs> reintroduce you to Margaret Hardwell. Maggie, on behalf of myself and the rest of the committee and the city of Lancaster, I would like to present to you a key to the city in recognition of your achievements in the ever-expanding field of theoretical physics. I couldn't help but smile at the pun. My mood softened significantly in the excitement of the moment as I accepted a small, rectangular wooden box from him. He motioned for me to open it, so I did, barely glancing inside the plush-lined box before showing its contents to the audience, who clapped and cheered. Only after did I get a better look at it. It was a skeleton key polished bright silver to the point where I could see myself reflected on the surface. The head of the key gave me pause for a minute, as I felt at least ten questions bubble up inside me, for in lieu of a town crest, which I had expected, the head of the key instead held the depiction of a rather foreboding satyr, with a spear in its hand and its horns curled back in a menacing spiral shape. Its face was undoubtedly masculine, with hardened eyes and an angular jaw, its gaze seeming to meet mine in an unsettling way. I glanced up at Dan Cohn, the confusion clear on my face, but his expression remained blank and polite as he clapped with the crowd. I tried to put it out of my thoughts as I delivered my speech, at this point rather mechanically. Was this a joke? Did an intern switch the real one out for this one or something? Was the town finally returning to its puritanical roots and mocking me for devoting my life to theoretical science instead of God? I pondered this incredulously as the rest of the ceremony wrapped up in the most conventional of manners. As the crowd began to disperse, Dan Cohn stopped in front of me 
let's have a chat in my office in an hour. Yes? He was the kind of guy that would phrase an imposing question as casually as possible. Let's have a chat. Let's get some grub while we go over your future here. Hey, sit down a minute. It was about as subtle as an earthquake at this point. I felt a chill run through me, but I had next to no idea why this entire event had turned so... imposing. Exactly one hour later, during which time I forced myself to wolf down a protein bar, I stepped inside the Lancaster Town Hall, grateful for the air conditioning they had on full blast. The front desk person was absent. I was alone in the lobby. <sighs> With an exasperated sigh, I trudged past the desk and through the double doors that led to the hallway of offices. My energy from putting on such a polite and welcoming air waning very thin. I held the key box in my hand, wondering if perhaps the purpose of the meeting was for it to be swapped for a real one. Or if, I thought to myself with some faint hope, I could simply return the damn thing. Dan Cohn's office door was ajar, but the lights were flipped off. A pale pink sticky note stuck to the handle informed me he may be late from a meeting, but to let myself in. I obliged this, flipping on the overhead lights and glancing around, my brow furrowing at the sight. Dan's office was about what you would expect, a sizable space with a giant polished wood desk, a couple of chairs placed at the front, facing a large set of windows with the blinds curiously drawn. A sofa and an armchair sat in opposite corners, and along with a large bookshelf, a few paintings adorned the plaster walls. The paintings were what grabbed my attention. Rather than the expected sedate nature scenes or photos of family or friends, these paintings were what appeared to be museum prints of religious artworks. One depicted cherubs clamoring around a reclining, slumbering naked woman, Another was a scene of Jesus facing off against the devil in a desert setting, like that Bible story. The third was by far the most jarring, a scene taken straight from Revelation. The dark red scheme of it and the detail in which the suffering mortals were painted at the hands of sadistic otherworldly monsters easily drew the eye away from anything else in this office, which was comparatively light. An odd choice. But I was starting to see a pattern. My latest formulated theory that Lanchester had somehow fallen into the hands of a cult during my absence. My latest formulated theory that Lancaster had somehow fallen into the hands of a cult during my absence. At least ten more questions were bubbling up in my head as I turned away from the artwork only to realize that there was another door in this office, also cracked open, with the light already on. Fine, I'll bite. I stepped over and threw the door open. A walk-in closet. A couple of winter jackets hung from hangers, as well as some dry clean suits. In the back corner lay a two-by-four wooden chest, and before I could register what I was doing, 
I'd strode over to it and tried to pry open the lid, to no avail. I peered at the front more closely. Aside from weathered brass brackets to hold the piece together, there was nothing ornate about it and nothing to suggest something insidious lay inside. I shook my head, admonishing myself for being so capricious, until I noticed the keyhole. It was exactly the shape that required a skeleton key. I may as well try it. ourselves, are we? That comes a little later. I whirled around to face a broadly grinning Dan Cohn, his too tan of a complexion contrasting with his gelled, sandy blonde hair. I... Oh, I'm tossing you. I bet you were just bored to tears waiting for me. Do come have a seat, though, and let's get down to business so we can get to the fun part as soon as possible. He winked at me. If Dan Cohn wasn't so notoriously the pinnacle of a younger career politician, I would have suspected he was coming on to me. I nodded stiffly as we both exited the closet and made for the desk. Oof, I tell you, this weather we're having, really uncanny stuff. I nodded and replied with some nondescript agreement, but the confusion and curiosity on my face was plainly written. Dan clapped his hands together with a hearty laugh. <laughs> no, you never were one for much small talk, were you? I like that about you. I think you and I would work well together. Are you offering me a job? I know you have your sights set on a life of science, and I respect that. Truly, we need more women like you in the field. You offer such keen insights. Oh, here we go. Yet another male superior launching into the monologue about how great it was that women were getting involved in STEM, of their own accord even. It wasn't that I didn't appreciate the recognition that there was a problem with physics being a male-dominated field, but I had heard this spiel from a lot of males usually in the midst of backtracking from an offhand comment they'd made that I'd rebuked or questioned. But I digress. <laughs> I bet you're wondering. Uh, sheesh, when will this guy get to the point? Well, that point is now. I'm not offering you a job, at least not yet. But I want to fill you in on how we do things in Lancaster. You see, we rarely give out keys to the city. We like to treat it as sort of uh, ambassadorship, if you will. We want our residents, whether former or current, to look back on this town with pride. So a few things come with some of our esteemed residents holding the key to the city to make the occasion all the more memorable. And to, in a way, let the recipients know that they are still important contributors to Lancaster's history and legacy. I want to give you a bit of a history lesson so you can better understand what this ambassadorship looks like. I'm sure you're well aware of the story of this town's founding, yes? 
I mean, just that it was a Puritan colony founded by Herbert Lancaster, who wanted the town to coexist with its surroundings better. I didn't think there was much to it. I felt my ears go red at how little information I actually knew. Dan Cohn's eyes lit up as though I had given him a college-level response. Yes, exactly that. At least, that is the gist of it. But our teachers and local historians usually leave out the lore of the story. Most likely so as not to scare the kids and visitors. (laughs) Uh, But there is a bit more to it. A bit of mysticism, even. It's all quite exciting, really. Herbert Lancaster and the rest of the founding committee were all born and bred Puritans. That much is true. They, their families, and their followers spent the first few years in that new settlement as devout and determined as could be to cultivate a loving, God-fearing community, relishing in their newfound freedoms. This all changed for Herbert himself when his wife gave birth to his second child a daughter by the name of Eliza. Eliza was their pride and joy, and Herbert felt a strong need to protect Eliza at all costs and shield her from any corrupting forces at work in the world. I mean, (laughs) that's, that's not really that uncommon for a father who's just had a daughter. Things soon took a dark turn, though. When Herbert and his wife, I believe her name was Alice, were told by the town physician that their precious child was born with a degenerative disease and likely wouldn't live past ten. Eliza was around three at the time and was showing signs of sickness, constantly bedridden, fatigued with fragile bones and hair that would fall out in clumps. It's a heart-wrenching thing to have to go through as a parent, I imagine. Herbert, ever the devout Christian man, prayed night and day for a sign, for healing, to provide his daughter with comfort, any bit of solace the good Lord could bestow, but nothing came of it. Herbert began to scorn God. In private at first, on the pages of his journal, but soon it began to emerge publicly. So angry was he with the hand he'd been dealt. I mean, can you imagine watching your daughter slowly die in front of you? The one guy who can save her just radio silent from up above. I'd probably start cursing him too, if it were me. Anyway. The people of Lancaster began to turn away from him, offended by his words and suspicious of the path it was leading him down. They were right to be suspicious, for in his spare time, Herbert no longer got on bent knee to pray. He began to research instead. He researched mysticism of all kinds, of all cultures. He read up on the spells of healing, equivalent exchange, cited by many of which an alchemist alike. He read up on summoning otherworldly beings, demons, if you will, trying to find some solution to his woes, trying to find the magic formula to save his poor, ailing daughter. 
By this point, all but two of the committee members had turned away from him and were plotting to cast him out of the town's leadership. Maybe even the town itself, for fear that he would bring a great evil upon the rest of them. The two other leaders simply felt sympathetic to his plight, but Herbert soon piqued their interest with his dabbling in mystic lore and ancient spells. One night, the three of them gathered to perform a ritual Herbert had spent weeks reading in detail, a ritual to summon a benign spirit and bind it to his service. Along with his servitude, it was said he could pursue a cure for his daughter. The three men huddled in Herbert's cellar and performed the ritual perfectly. And before they had time to question their success, a spirit had entered their realm and the room inhabiting one of the committee members so it could communicate with him. Herbert commanded the spirit to enter under his servitude, which the spirit obliged readily. Herbert then asked the spirit if it could find a way to heal his daughter. The spirit replied that it not only had a way of healing his daughter, but also of bestowing a blessing upon the town that would ensure its eternal prosperity and good fortune. It would forever be a safe place to raise children where no famine nor flame could touch it. The three men in the room were intrigued and asked what the cost of this would be. The spirit simply replied that it wanted some recognition for the good it would give the town. The men promised the spirit that it would be included and alluded to on every town symbol, the crest, erected memorials, and other artwork. With that, the spirit left the room though its presence could still at times be felt around the town. Or, so it said, Herbert's daughter miraculously healed and was able to live a safe, normal life with her loving father. Other sicknesses that had struck the townsfolk left them as well. The entire region went through a severe drought the following summer, but not one individual in the town suffered. And the farmers produced almost twice their normal yield, astonishingly. Now, the two committee members that followed Herbert through his path down mysticism hailed the prosperity of the town as his own work. And the rest of the committee soon put aside their initial suspicions and welcomed him back into the circle as well. They officially named the town Lancaster after him. And Herbert took it upon himself to construct the motto and slogan, using the depiction of a satyr in homage to the spirit who had helped him and his people. Dan Cohn motioned at my key box. I opened it once more, staring down at the image, unsure what to think even now. Dan continued, but his tone shifted. Of course, you're a smart girl. I'm sure you know a thing or two about Christians pursuing the dark arts. I'm sure you can guess how this story ends. You mean the spirit was actually evil or something? Or something indeed. Dan Cohn suddenly slapped his hands on the desk excitedly, about to reveal the big twist ending. 
You don't strike deals with spirits, Maggie. Someone gets fucked sooner or later. And you want to know who got fucked in this case? I stared at him in a daze. The entire town. (laughs) Ah, the spirit wasn't benign after all. In fact, quite the opposite. It was a servant of Lucifer's. So it was said. It wasn't until the town's priest caught wind of Lancaster's mysterious savior that he realized what had happened. But by then, it was too late. Herbert and his band of starry-eyed morons had sold the town down the river for the heavenly equivalent of a pack of smokes. They had traded every man, woman, and child's soul for prosperity and safety, at least in the mortal realm. And once every citizen in that town passes on to the next world, boom! Straight into the devil's clutches. Or hell's clutches, I suppose. Uh, It didn't just stop with the currently living citizens at the time, either. No, ma'am. Lancaster had somehow tacitly agreed to letting everyone down the line forfeit their souls as well. And he couldn't do a thing about it. Besides continue to thank the monster who had tricked him. Really, pretty horrific stuff. (laughs) I could feel a headache coming on as Dan leaned back in his chair in a satisfied silence. I rubbed my temples, absorbing what I'd just heard, believing none of it, wondering why my time was being wasted like this. I could really only come up with one question, though. What does all of this have to do with my key to the city? Why, Maggie, first and foremost, it means you're privy to the goings-on behind the municipal doors. Now, you think I just told you that story to give you an entertaining anecdote? I'm telling you this because it's true. All of it. And you and the rest of the key holders have a responsibility now to maintain our deal with the devil. So to speak. What the hell are you on about? Dan stood up abruptly, wordlessly leading us back to the walk-in closet. He stopped in front of the chest. You know what to do. I tried to read his expression but couldn't, and instead knelt down to the chest and inserted the hideous key. It turned and clicked seamlessly, and I swung the lid open, unsure what to make of the stacks of paper and leather-bound journals and ledgers that stared back at me. Dan reached down past me, grazing my shoulder as he grabbed a thick, weathered old journal bound in black leather. Herbert's journal. He recorded every minute detail in here. It's how we know what happened, down to the very ritual they performed. Dan reached down again, pulling out a ledger and handing it to me. I wordlessly opened it on a random page, trying to make sense of the list of names, ages, dates, and various city names scrawled on the charts below. 
These are all citizens? Citizens that are descended from Lancaster's first settlers. I think that is the year 1927. It's an old one. The current one is elsewhere. Why would you keep record of this in this form? Only direct descendants are affected by the curse. It became vitally important that we kept track of their whereabouts at all times. It also became vitally important that we didn't let them leave the town, or that, at the very least, we were able to get their own descendants to return. I still don't understand why that would be important. Any charismatic quality that Dan had possessed had fallen away. His eyes bore holes into the back of my head, and no part of him suggested that he was still just joshing me. How much do I have to spell it out to you? Every year, the big guy that put this demon to work in Lancaster expects a certain number of deceased Lancastrian souls, based on the number of deaths foretold. Now, but sometimes that number falls short, whether someone survives a near death or even simply moves away. The funny thing about fate is that it's not as infallible as it seems. But those of us employed in this area work do try to account for it. It becomes a Lancaster ambassador's job to ensure that the number stays at even with the quota that was handed down, whether by convincing a descendant to stay or move back, or even producing a few descendants of their own. <laughs> You're asking me to take over making sure we have enough souls to sacrifice to some demon that someone summoned centuries ago? Even if I did believe you, why on earth would I agree to that? I grit my teeth. I was struggling to keep my cool and wanted to get out of this literal godforsaken office. Find my mother and get the hell out of this town. Don't you know? Your own father grew up here in Lancaster, as did his parents and his grandparents and the ones before that. You were born and raised here yourself. <laughs> you are one of the direct descendants, as I am. I'm giving you a chance to free yourself, free your soul. Something your father would have killed for. Imagine. Dan paused, letting the implication sink in. And while every ounce of my being fought and screamed, this is bullshit, his words still hit me where it hurt. And I felt my stomach clench and my eyes prick as my dull, long-suffered grief began to re-emerge. The only descendants that ever escaped this fate only did so by agreeing to do the demon's bidding while here on Earth. Of course, that would require moving back, starting a family here, taking up a job in the local government. Dan stopped himself with a sudden realization, leading him to grin again. So, I guess I am offering you a job, after all. You're crazy! This entire thing is crazy! I don't want the goddamn key. Just take it back. Oh, the job isn't so bad. Think of it like bookkeeping. 
uh, you would be taking on an important role. It might involve some deceit and maybe some light dabbling in black magic, but all you'd be doing is keeping the town safe. Who knows what would happen if we just stopped trying to keep the numbers even. If we stopped giving it all, uh, for all we know, the entire town would be struck down in an instant. How is harvesting souls better? At the very least, these souls enjoy a safe, happy, prosperous life here for the time being. There's nothing else we can do. It has been like this since Lancaster's establishment. You think the past mayors and leaders haven't tried to stop it? Every time one of them refused, a horrible tragedy would occur. Factory fire, mindless massacre, severe famine... <sighs> Dan shuddered, as if he had been there to witness the atrocities personally. I had had enough. Wordlessly, I turned heel and began to make for the doorway, not wanting to engage any further in this. Just as I reached the threshold, the closet door slammed in front of me, propelled by some unknown force. I jumped back and felt a pair of hands roughly grab my shoulders and knock me back into the wall hard. I was face to face with Dan, but his countenance had changed completely, as though a completely different person were inhabiting the same body. His pupils were like pinpricks as he glared into my own, and his muscles seemed to spasm. His fingers wrapped so tightly around my arms I could feel bruises forming. Oh, I apologize. You have less of a choice in this matter than you thought. He ground his teeth together between speaking and seemed to vibrate with energy, as if he'd taken some kind of amphetamine and didn't quite know what to do with himself. Oh, you can decline the offer if you want, but know that I'll find you and I'll drag your soul to hell where it belongs. Whether or not you are still alive, I'll take your precious fucking mothers too, just for good measure. Dan, or rather the demon, grinned, but instead of Dan's usual winning smile, he or it bared its teeth flashing gums. Have you ever seen a person with no soul that's still alive? It's a little like seeing a wounded animal on the brink of death. Oh, glassy eyes. Absolutely no way of understanding or connecting with anything else. Just unending primal fear. Waiting to fade into non-existence. Dan's frosty blue eyes were starting to take on a dark violet tinge, a color that made me shudder, but I couldn't look away. I was transfixed on the creature taking shape in front of me, still under the guise of this middle-aged local mare. I was livid that the thing would bring my mother into this. She has nothing to do with this. You can't do shit to her or me. Demon Dan's eyes flashed with some amusement, but mostly irritation, and he leaned in close until I could taste his scalding, acrid breath, making my eyes water. I can and will 
Sakai, please. I can make it as painful and gut-wrenching for her as I want. I can make you watch. Instantly, we were transported to a different place entirely. Far from the office closet, it seemed. It was a scene not unlike the painting hanging in the office. I opened my mouth to exclaim something of surprise, but was drowned out by the noise and chaos that enveloped us. I stared out over the expanse of darkness, making out shapes of faceless naked bodies of every age, gender, and race, each starved and mutilated and suffering in some way. The smell of sulfur and rot burned in my nostrils and on my tongue, and I cringed at the sounds of bones being broken, limbs being ripped from torsos, the gnashing of teeth of what sounded like gigantic beasts enjoying a hearty meal. From above, in the abyss of sky, a colossal stone fell onto a crowd of the damned, and their cries were silenced with the crash of the weight, but only momentarily, before exposed limbs and heads began to struggle from beneath it, strangled cries erupting to add to the orchestra of suffering. Every ounce of me wanted to turn heel and run, but I had absolutely nowhere to go. There was no end to this realm in sight. I felt like my chest was slowly being compressed, like my eyes and my brain were swelling too large for my skull. Like I would burst, or implode, or simply cease existing at any second. I doubled over in pain, but a hand quickly grabbed the back of my head and wrenched me back upright. Demon Dan swiveled both of us to face a large, upright wooden wheel, rotating slowly, upon which an all-too-familiar figure was strapped. And I felt my stomach contract as I recognized my own mother crying out weakly as blade after rusted blade was thrown from an unknown source, striking her each time and ripping open a new gash. One of her eyes had already been taken out. Her hair was patchy, as though most of it had been ripped from her scalp, and blood spurted from countless wounds all over her. Her remaining eye fixed itself on me. When she opened her mouth to scream at me for help or to run, I couldn't tell, because in that instant yet another blade found its home within her open jaw, and her screams of pain were renewed. I knew I was screaming as well, adding my voice to the infinitely many, but I couldn't hear it. I was tearing and clawing at something. Myself? Demon Dan? I tried to move, to flee, but my feet were glued to the spot. A clawed hand still gripping the back of my neck tightly, drawing blood from it where it clung. I felt my limbs growing heavier and stiffer, and I could see the skin on my hands and arms begin to swell and take on a mottled, purplish color, as though I was watching myself decompose in real time. I realized I could no longer breathe, and my lungs felt like they were constricting. My screams were cut short with a gurgle as my throat began to swell shut. Suddenly, a dozen disembodied arms reached out from the darkness, grabbing hold of me and pulling me forward, 
I could feel myself falling into the pit with the rest of them, the suffocating stench of decay reaching up to greet me like a gut punch, the torturous cries of the damned like tendrils wrapping around my very bones, vibrating with frantic energy. I fell to the ground with a hard thud. But it was carpet. Office carpet. A yellow ceiling light flickered above, and the scene of hell or Armageddon, whatever it was, had vanished. Had I collapsed? What had just happened? A hand, presumably Dan's, reached down and encircled my arm, this time gently, and pulled me to my feet. Whatever spirit had taken over had now vacated, and Dan Cohn shot me a sympathetic smile. <clears throat> Truly, I didn't want it to go that far, but uh, Mephistopheles seems to like it that way. Uh, it thinks that giving people a taste of the truth can really convince them. I could only stare back, once again speechless, only breathing heavily, unsure of the fortitude of my lungs. My forehead was beaded with sweat, my legs wobbly. I wanted to cry. I wanted to find my mom. Of course, you have some time to decide if you want the job. And does a month sound fair to you? I nodded. Staring at the ground, Dan clapped his hands together. Great! He handed me the key to the city after shutting the wooden chest and locking it. He continued chatting at me happily, but I had long since tuned him out, instead focusing on grabbing my things and letting myself be ushered out. The next few hours were a blur, in which I operated on autopilot, totally absent from reality. My mother was, of course, fine. I resisted the urge to embrace her tightly and weep, just barely. She and I said our goodbyes to the good mayor Dan Cohn before checking out of our motel and heading for the airport. Hours and hours later, I found myself back in my own apartment, alone at last. I felt like I was waking up from a nightmare. My entire body ached and I was exhausted, questioning once again the events of the entire day, fully doubting once more what had transpired in Dan's office and closet. I didn't know how to shake the feeling of despair and terror I felt. I didn't know what my next steps were. What if it had been real? What if it wasn't real? But what if the town government was indeed run by a cult? Would they track me down and my mother if I refused the job? Refused to move back to Lancaster? That night I sat down and googled the name Mephistopheles. The name Dan had used to refer to the spirit, which led to the play Dr. Faustus. The tale that Dan had woven for me bared many resemblances to Christopher Marlowe's work, which led me to believe my theory of occult takeover more. My nerves began to settle as I began to reason this theory out and paused only to take a hot bath, 
and soothe my inexplicably aching muscles. Perhaps I was drugged and hallucinated the entire thing. I mused in front of the mirror as I gathered my hair to put in a top knot. I froze when my fingers grazed something hardened and crusty on my neck. I turned my head, trying to get a view of it, and saw that it was a small gash with dried blood caked around it. My stomach dropped as I felt around my neck and head for similar wounds. I counted five. I hadn't imagined claws boring into my head then. I tore off my clothes, examining my aching limbs, finding my arms, legs, and shoulders dotted with bruises as though from being grabbed roughly and thrown. My spine prickled in realization. I turned and peered outside of my bathroom, over to my dresser atop which sat the wooden box that housed the skeleton key. I crossed the room and grabbed the thing, taking it back to the better-lit bathroom to examine it more closely. What I saw confirmed every nagging doubt I had. I was staring a new truth hard in the face, unwilling to believe it but finding no reasonable explanation, especially in my exhausted state. Primal fear gripped me and led me to my cell phone, where I wordlessly dialed Dan Cohn's office number, unable to stop myself. It was 11.30 at night by this time, but I had no doubt he would pick up. Hello? Hey, it's Maggie. I was calling to say that I have decided to take you up on your offer. Well, that's splendid news. I'll set you up with someone in HR tomorrow to go over the logistics. Oh, Dan droned on excitedly, as I sullenly wondered how my advisor and my co-workers at the lab would take to the news that I was suddenly changing career paths. Not well, I imagined. Or what my mom would think, that I'd suddenly decided to pick up and move back? How could I explain that away? Something told me Dan would have that all figured out, though. Dan eventually let me go. I numbly sat down on the side of my bed, wondering vaguely what I'd just done. I knew I didn't have a choice. My only goal in mind was to keep my mother safe. I knew now that Dan hadn't lied about any of it nor that he and the other townsfolk had been goaded into joining some kind of devil-worshipping group. The key and my injuries had proved that much. For when I stared down at the head again, underneath my blinding bathroom lights, I saw that the image had undoubtedly changed. The satyr's face was no longer that of a man's, but of my own. And the end of it where it had been inserted into the lock, was coated in a thick layer of rust. Mephistopheles claimed that it was led to Dr. Faustus, not by his explorations into mysticism and witchcraft, but rather his renunciation of God. The same thing can be said of Herbert Lancaster, I realize that now. One could theorize that because of this, perhaps Mephistopheles isn't a servant of Lucifer, but rather God himself, sent to punish those who stray and exploit human greed 
to teach others around them a lesson. I don't really care who it is that is pulling the strings, God or Satan. What I know is that there is a wealth of knowledge that has remained untapped in Lancaster since Herbert first sold all of us out. What I believe is that there is a way to rid us of the chains the one that calls itself Mephistopheles bound us in, but the key has not yet been found. I intend to find a way out. I intend to free us of our servitude, and I intend to exact my own revenge. It all begins with a little research. I ship out back to Lancaster in a month. Until then, I'm hitting the books. As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit the nosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc. <laughs>